This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Hello, Dr. Jana. Hello, Joe. This is episode 21, so we are wow, legal drinking legal. age. All right, let's celebrate with some Prosecco. Prosecco, really? That's the only I mean, thing so, I drink, really. so bougie, man. God. Is that bougie? Very bougie. Anyway, you, episode... What's your drink of choice? Um, I'm I'm pretty basic. I'm a vodka soda fellow. Oh, God, that is so basic, Joe. Yeah, but you know what? It's low I mean, calorie. It goes along with, uh, wow. with the Man, rest of, you the know. The picture you paint of me, Dr. Jana. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Uh, but I will say I will. Uh, I pay respect to you all the time because you're a very talented uh, sex scientist. Mm-hmm. And you've titled today's episode, To Shave or Not to Shave. That alone <laughs> should be enough for anyone to just, if they just happen to start the podcast just a second, like, well, I wonder what they're, t- they're talking about, Prosecco, vodka. Oh, the title of the show, To Shave or Not to Shave. Yep. I'm hooked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will get into that in a second, but before we, we uh, get going, I want to mention that Dr. Jana launched her own Patreon page where you can support the podcast and all the work she does because, Dr. Jana, you are a very busy lady. We're I try t- to be. We're texting back and forth, and you're this place over here, you're that place over there. <laughs> you just came from teaching a class, and you run over here on the bicycle. People don't yes. know that about you. Yeah, you yeah, ride a bike, like bike to the studio. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. For as little as $2, $2 a month, you can help out Dr. Jana. All you got to do is go to patreon.com slash Dr. Jana, and that's spelled, if you don't know by now, everyone should know, D-R-Z-H-A-N-A. How'd I do with that? You did so well, Joe. Oh, thank you very much. Very well done. And speaking of the thousand things you do, you're going to go ride a bicycle to Brooklyn <laughs> for your next event, right, in March? There is an event coming on March 22nd that is titled, Are Open Relationships Right for You? Mm. Are they right for your you? Your titles are so good. Your title game is strong. <laughs> no, very but good. this is the third in a series of four events that we've had over the last three months and then one more after this coming on the same general topic of consensual non-monogamy, open relationships, polyamory, and so on. They're meant to kind of give people information about what polyamory and consensual non-monogamy is and how it plays out and what research knows about this topic from various different studies and then how people can apply what we know from research to their own lives in terms of deciding whether this is the right thing for them. And if it is, what is the specific type of of consensual non-monogamy that might be right for them. Nice. And is your freaky friend Kenneth going to be there? Kenneth is not going to be there. Why is he a freaky friend? I don't friend? know. You know, I've, I, we're friends on social media, and I see all the crazy things oh, he does. Kenneth Play is amazing. If you have not checked out Kenneth Play, yeah. go to kennethplay.com or find him on social media. He's a sex educator who is also based in Brooklyn, and he does all sorts of hands-on yeah. type sex education where he shows people like how you do squirting or how you do anal yeah. and um, yeah, yeah. And, and I say freaky with love because of you course. could you could probably understand what I mean but he's of a little course. freaky because I remember I was on like on an Insta story and I was flipping through and all of a sudden I see Kenneth's ass all of a sudden, he's just like, he's on some sort of beach, and he just decides to like stand in front of the beach with his ass out kind of thing. Yeah, so. why not? His stuff is often uh, NSFW, unlike our stuff, which yeah. is friendly. Well, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, pretty, yeah. pretty pretty safe for work as far as explicit uh, images yeah, go. Yeah, true. You're right. I mean, yeah. we discuss sexual topics, mm-hmm. but- you know, we keep it serious yeah, enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're, we're, we're all about Very science-based. Yeah, yeah. We, we do that. So that's cool. I'm sorry okay. to me get on a tangent there, but I, I was wondering, because I know you and Ken are, are friends, so I don't know if yes. he showed up to we're the friends, thing. and we do cool. a lot of uh, the stuff together, uh, but no, he's not probably going to be at that event. All right. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, I probably wasn't going to go anyway, but anyway, but if you had told me Kenneth was there. But uh, before we get going, uh, just mention, we, we did say the title of today's show is To Shave or Not to Shave. <laughs> that has to do with our guest, correct? Yes, it does. We have Dr. Benjamin Breyer from the University of California at San Francisco, who's going to talk to us about a study on pubic hair grooming and sexually transmitted infections. And what are the links between these two? So it's a very Shakespearean Mm. edition of The Science of Sex, to shave (laughs) or not to shave. The Science of Sex, foreplay. All right, Dr. John, I might get you a little angry with this uh, first topic, okay? Angry? Wow, okay, try me. I kind of know how to push your buttons and everything like that. but uh, The G-spot is a myth. That's what a new study says, because you've mentioned the G-spot multiple times in our over uh, several weeks we've worked mm-hmm. together. Scientists are saying 
that guys can be excused for failing to find their partner's G-spot after <laughs> doctors proved it does not exist. BS. I'm calling you bullshit see? on you that see? One. I told you. I knew I would get you angry. So, sexperts have previously claimed that women can experience mind-blowing orgasms by stimulating a sweet spot inside the vagina. Now, this is apparently named after scientists, right? The G-spot? Yeah. He okay. was a gynecologist. Okay. So, Ernst, right? Grafenberg? Ernst Grafenberg. Okay. It was named after him, mm-hmm. correct? Now, these scientists in Melbourne, Australia say that the most conclusive study to date has failed to find any anatomical structure. Now, so far, how's that sound? Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Okay. Sort of. All right. Cool. Mm-hmm. They examined the bodies of 13 women, aged 32 to 97, and found nothing but the vaginal wall lining and the P-tube in the G-spot zone. The, the study leader, Dr. Nathan over there, said it's likely that the pleasurable sensation felt by stimulating the area is because it's so close to the clitoris and not because it is a G-spot. It's just because the fact that it's so close to the clitoris. So what okay. say you, Dr. Jana, who's been studying sex science for years, <laughs> have probably been a proponent of the G-spot and talking about finding the G-spot? I don't know. I'm a proponent of whatever science says is accurate. Okay. That's what I propose. Proponent. That's yeah. not a thing. <laughs> That's you proponent, sure. <laughs> That's what I'm a proponent of. Okay. All right. Cool. So talk to me. What, what do you think well, about this? So this is, has been a debate that has been going on for quite some time in terms of what is the G-spot. Like, there is no doubt that there is an area on the anterior, the front wall of the vagina, that many women feel like if stimulated, especially in the right way, in a particular kind of uh, way, it provides a different kind of sensation, a different kind of pleasure. It can, in some cases, lead to squirting or female ejaculation. So that subjective experience that women have is very real. Okay. Right? Nobody is trying to argue that that is not real. Okay. No one's disputing that. However, the dispute has been what exactly is that area that so many women think uh, feels different than other areas around the the vaginal walls. And one potential explanation, one theory, and I think what most people think of when they think G-spot, is that it's an anatomical area, a unique anatomical area. And what I mean by that is that it's a spot, however big it is, you know, nobody knows for sure, but let's say, you know, it's the size of uh, whatever, it's the size of a penny. A, a penny. Okay. Sure, let's go with a penny. That is somehow has a different cell structure. Like maybe it has different types of cells than the other areas surrounding it. it. Or maybe it has a different number of receptors, touch receptors or some other type of receptors uh, than the surrounding area. Or in some way, right, there's histological, like the tissues are different or the receptors are different. So that's what most people think. Uh, There's also this notion like there's some spongy tissue that is added like right there that... Uh, is 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 somehow different. That's you know one possible explanation that I think most people have in their minds of what that G spot would be. The other explanation for why there's this area is that it's a functional area. It's not an anatomical area. It's a functional area. What we mean by that is that anatomically there is nothing unusual or there, there's nothing special about this area. It's just the part of the vagina or the anterior front wall of the vagina where the Uh, urethra comes close, kind of goes right above that part of the wall. And then also the legs of the clitoris, because hopefully by now listeners know that the clitoris has a very large internal portion, not just the little external uh, area that, that you can see and touch on the outside, but that it has these legs that kind of go around the vagina. And those legs kind of come together on top of the urethra, which sits right on top of that part of the vagina. And so basically it is a functional area where all these three things come together, the vagina with, uh, and the, the vaginal wall, obviously with uh, all the receptors that the vaginal wall has, plus the urethra that goes on top, plus the two legs of the clitoris that come uh, together right above that. And if you're stimulating, if you're kind of pushing up against the anterior wall of the vagina in that particular area, then you're hitting the urethra and you're hitting the internal clitoris. And that's what produces this kind of special pleasure yeah. that other parts of the vagina being stimulated will not produce. So what you're saying, though, is not far off of what these guys, uh, these no, no, doctors... So these, so these doctors are now basically confirming that second possible explanation, that second hypothesis. That basically there's no one thing. It's just sort of like this perfect storm or Bermuda Triangle where all these meet. Mm-hmm. And if you hit that particular spot, mm-hmm. that is what the G spot is. Exactly. But basically there is no, like, if the, you were cut open a woman, you know, mm-hmm. per, per se, you would not see 
anything. There'd be nothing special. Nothing different, yeah. For Everything's the same. Exactly, yeah. Whatever that area, let's say the size of a penny yeah. or, or smaller or larger, is going to look exactly the same under a microscope, for example, than all of the surrounding areas. And that's actually exactly what these uh, scientists did. They examined the bodies of 13 women. So mm. these were cadavers. These were dead oh, women. Oh, okay, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. Good to <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> they did not open up uh, live women. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to find anything kind of anatomically different in that anterior uh, wall of their vaginas, and they couldn't find anything. So this goes to support that second explanation that we're just talking about a perfect storm or right. a Bermuda tr- Triangle, as yeah. you so eloquently sure. put it. I mean, yes. that's what I do. I can't do... Like, literally, <laughs> after listening to you describe the vagina, mm-hmm. I feel like I could be a gynecologist. You're so <laughs> good at explaining all the parts and where everything goes. It's really good. Yeah. So in a way, I didn't make you mad. This sort of confirmed one of the two hypotheses you had in t- about the, the G-spot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. People read this kind of stuff. You can tell by the way the headline is written. The G-spot is a myth, study yeah. claims, right? And people interpret that as it doesn't exist, therefore there's nothing in that area that is special or there's nothing in the area that needs to be stimulated. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of off the hook right. kind of thing, right? For even trying to provide sensation in that area or in that particular way. Now, not every woman is going to necessarily feel anything special. And when you ask women whether they have you know, some special sensation inside there, uh, not all of them, something, something like 60 or 70 percent uh, will say that they do feel something different, yep. but you know, something like 30%, depending on the sample. We don't have nationally representative samples on this question, but you know, a, a substantial minority of women will say they don't feel it. And who knows, maybe it's because they haven't found that perfect storm. They haven't yeah. been you know, stimulated in, in the way that finds that perfect storm. Or maybe the way their anatomical features come together, maybe their clitoral legs sit a little farther away. And so it's not very easy to stimulate it in that way. Or you know, so who knows why, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a G-spot A G spot in this functional sense of the word. So these women that you've heard in the past, I, no, no guys ever hit the G-spot. Mm-hmm. It's not because there's anything wrong anatomically with them. It's just that, like you mentioned, that there, maybe their G-spot is a different location as to the other women these other guys have been with, right? It, it could be in a slightly yeah. different position that isn't as easily reached, yeah. or they're just built in a way that is not very easy to kind of create but that they have it sensation. it's there i mean unless there's something wrong right they have a vagina they have a urethra <laughs> yes and they have a clitoris those mm. three things <laughs> yeah. that make up this functional bermuda triangle they exist in virtually every person with a vagina and <laughs> all right all right well so good I'm, I'm glad to know so i cannot use that excuse so i cannot say there's no g-spot it's a myth that doctors prove it because i don't know have you have you found your partner oh G-spot? please i'm i'm like a phd in g-spots oh yeah i don't even know if that's a thing but <laughs> Uh, anyways, you know, speaking of partners, people don't know this, but you're a single lady. So I was wondering, to, because since I, I, you always like to make fun of me that I've been in a relationship for 100 years, uh-huh. how many dates do you wait to go away with a particular fella? Like, so you're, 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 you're with somebody, and all of a sudden they pop you the, hey, you want to go away this weekend. How many dates do you get to that spot where you're comfortable uh, I mean, I'm, I'm probably asking the wrong person, but because uh, you'll probably say, I don't, I don't know, like uh, after coffee. No. <laughs> well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the person. It depends on how much I like them. It depends on what kind of trip we're talking about. Like, I'm much more likely to go away with someone on a two day trip than I am on like a 10 day trip, okay. obviously. So it depends on what we're talking about. Well, all right, let's just say a short little <laughs> trip, say a three day weekend. I, I would do that. Even with someone I barely know. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but wow. I, I, I tend I like, to take risks. Yeah, like I said, you're not, I, not your I'm, right. a, I'm a high sensation seeking yeah. person. But yeah. the reason I bring it up is because they asked um, women, and a majority of women said they'd be willing to go on a trip with someone after just five dates. Okay. Five, five dates. dates. Yeah. That's, All right. I mean, it's, if you think about it, five dates, that could probably stretch out over two and a half weeks. So maybe you know the person <laughs> over two and a half, right? You'd probably, a, a date or two. It, it could stretch out yeah. over months, <laughs> depending on how often you see True. each other. Now, shocking, men are ready to go even sooner. How about this, mm. Dr. Jana? They'd be willing to go after just three dates. Interesting. Yeah. So guys are more in the Dr. Jana mold of, <laughs> of high risk and uh, reward kind of thing. So. Yeah. So. Uh, th- 
that's interesting. I think there are a couple of things going on there. I mean, we don't have data based on this uh, survey, which, mm-hmm. by the way, was not a... Here we go. Say it. No, a nationally I, I, representative. I, I, here we yes, go. Yes, I just want to put it out there. It's <laughs> so something done, I think, by Travelocity. Yeah. To whatever extent this gender difference is replicable so that men are more likely to agree to go on a, on a trip with someone they've, they've uh, seen fewer times than women are. I think probably to some extent there's a risk-taking element. Men, on, on average, tend to be higher risk-takers. Another thing I think that this has to do with is I think women's sense of safety, right? Mm-hmm. So they might feel not just in the sense that like the trip might go poorly in the sense like we're not going to be a, a good time. match right, and yeah. we're not going to have a good time together, but also like I might get hurt yeah. in some way that the guys are not fearing as much. I think there's also the willingness to have sex plays right. into that. It's sort of automatically assumed, right? If you, yeah, if you go on a trip with yeah. someone, kind of the expectation is you are going to have sex with that yeah. person. And women usually, on average, require longer uh, period of knowing someone right. before they Courtship. agree to have sex. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I think all of those things play a role. And yeah. then who knows, maybe men are just kind of more... If I think men, if they like someone... Mm-hmm. And they decide over the first couple of uh, dates that they really like someone. They're often willing to kind of jump in and yeah. be like, "Okay, we're doing this kind of thing," as as opposed to women who might be a little more cautious. I mean, uh, not to belabor this, but to me, I've always thought that the trip date was almost like the ultimate test of a relationship. That would be the one way to know if you're a match with someone because that's when you kind of get to know the person's foibles, like their. Uh, I guess their procedures in the morning and how they get around, oh, what they yeah. do. So it's a good, I mean, I can understand the safety aspect you mm-hmm. made. It's a great point. But then again, as a woman, as long as you feel safe with the person and you want to know what this dude's all about, I guess it's, I guess that's always you, the ultimate judge. And of that. you either have had sex or you're yeah. fine having sex for the first time during that right. trip. Then yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Going on a trip is, is a great way to, to, get to know somebody on, on on a deeper level and see whether there's more compatibility because when you go on a single date for a few hours, you're on your best behavior. Yes. And you're still going to be on your best behavior if you go on a three-day trip, yeah. right? You're still going to manage your your image that you, you present uh, to this person. But still, somebody gets to see you on a day-to-day yeah. basis. And, and that, that is a very intimate and vulnerable position to place yourself in because this person gets to see you kind of uninterruptedly for like 48 hours or 72 hours. I will say, I mean, if you were to do that, just uh, me not being one of these people who are relationship experts, which I always find it a hysterical relationship, what makes a relationship expert? No, but they always, uh, my thing would be like, I would not wait to have sex on that on that getaway. I would do it beforehand. Because Before, can you yeah, imagine yeah. if you had shitty sex on your weekend trip <laughs> and then like say you're there for five days and you do it on the first night, you're like, oh my God, these next four to, nights. I have to fuck this person for four months. Yeah, I, I think so. Again, I agree. me not being a relationship expert, that's just throwing it out there. I absolutely agree. I, I would certainly not go on a three-day vacation with someone that I have not had sex with before. Cool. So yeah. look at that. Me and Dr. John agree on something. Woo-hoo. That's pretty good. Funny you should ask, but Actually, so I am single now, but I was married up until recently. And my first actual date with my ex-husband when when we started out was a trip. Wait, what? We were all kind of on this weekend getaway with friends. And that's where we hooked up for the first time. Okay. So there was a bunch of people there, obviously, and we we hooked up. But then the next time we saw each other, because we didn't live in the same city at the time, I was up in Ithaca doing my PhD at Cornell, and he was traveling between Colorado and New York City. And we decided to do a three-day trip to the Gunks, which is a climbing area upstate, because I wanted him to teach me how to rock climb. And that was basically our first date outside of that context. Wait, so you went with a a practical stranger on on a trip? I mean, I'd hooked up with this person. We had spent a couple of days up with a bunch of friends with like yeah, 15 different friends. but still friends. you didn't have like a I lot had of had alone. I had sex with him, so okay. I knew sex was good. Okay, all right. You know? Uh, but yeah, my first alone time with this person for three days straight and nobody else around and no phones. There was Whoa. no cell reception Jeez. up there. And there was no internet up at the house where we were staying. So it was just the two of us for three days. And basically coming back from that to go back to your point of uh, how that can be an ultimate test of a relationship. Yeah. We came back from that and we we're like, we didn't kill each other. Hmm. I called my best friend. He called his best friend. And we we're like, we didn't kill each other. 
I think this has potential. Wow. Yeah. Did you say, like, I'm going to marry this guy? Did you have one of I those? I mean, no. I didn't go <laughs> that far. We were like, okay, this actually has potential. Wow. And then the next date was, oh, a, was a week-long trip to Mexico. <laughs> Did you ever believe in going just to the Olive Garden? What is this? You go mountain Olive climbing? Garden. I've never been to All right, uh, the Olive here Garden. We go. No, on the second No, on that second trip, he taught me how to, how to surf. Interesting. Yeah. So oh. this guy sounds like a very jocular fellow. He, he's very <laughs> jocular, like he's very active. He is very active. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. He's a good guy because I know he's a big fan guy. of the podcast. He is. He loves you. Oh well, well nice. Yeah. Guy. He's a smart man. Smart man. <laughs> I mean, who knows what happened between the two you guys? But I'm sure you guys are still friends, which oh, is kind of great. Super great friends. Yes. That's awesome. I adore him. And so the sex was good with him, though, right? Sex was good, yeah. And the reason I bring that up, I know that's kind of really just a really straightforward question, but I have one more little survey I wanted to throw by you, okay. if you don't mind. A new survey had men and women rank the seven most common noises you can make during sex. I didn't realize there were seven, but they've come up with seven. Well, these are the seven most common, I guess. Yeah. Okay. okay. And so what's the survey about which ones are the most liked? Yeah, I mean, they kind of rated them in terms uh-huh. of like what's good. Okay. Okay. Oh, so this is a very useful, practical advice, people. Yeah, totally. These are the good noises and the bad noises. Sure. And this is right. this is probably from like a nationally representative. Oh, I'm scale, sure it's a national. As you always say, <laughs> I don't even. I never know what that means when you say that, but whatever. So number oh one. Oh my god! I hope you know what that means. <laughs> I, I will not have I done my job I here. Kid. I kid. Uh, so the number one noise was moaning. Ninety-one percent of men and seventy-seven percent of women like moaning. Okay. So moaning so makes sense. Please, people, moan. Moan. Men, too. I feel like men very often don't moan enough or don't make any noise. For whatever reason, they think that's the right thing to do. It's not. We want to know okay. that you're enjoying Good. yourself. Right, we want to know pen. that you're getting close to maybe coming. We want right, to know when it. you've come. Okay. I, I've, I've had guys, you're taking notes? I'm yeah, taking notes, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you've had guys make no noise? Like zero noise. Zero, Are zero you afraid noise. that they're dead? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you can see them moving, you can see their eyes are open and and stuff, but there's like no noise leading up to the orgasm or during the orgasm, and you're like, um, what just happened? Oh, jeez. Why'd you stop? Oh, 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 you came. Oh, that was it. Oh. Interesting. Okay. Um, some advance notice would have been lovely. <laughs> you know, maybe I could have come with you or something. Nah, it wasn't important at the time. Or I would have asked you, wait, hold on. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm close. I'm almost there. Give me another two minutes. Right. So that's a good sign, moaning. All right. Yeah. Number two is I'm surprised at how high it is because people could take it either way. Talking dirty. 77% of men liked it and 74% of women liked it. I, I, yeah. I didn't realize that would be so high. W- mm-hmm. What is your take on the talking dirty? Talking dirty is a sexy thing to do. It's part of sex, and so I'm not surprised at all. Now, you I, can certainly go wrong. Yeah, that's with that, how... that was my concern, yes. Like what you're <laughs> yeah, saying, exactly. especially in this day and age. Yes, like, what you're saying and how you're saying it. Can you yeah. imagine now with all like the, everyone's being so sensitive, <laughs> sensitive, the talking dirty would be like, Oh, you are such a strong, independent woman. You know, th- <laughs> that's the kind of stuff you'd have to say now. Because, oh ba- you know, the old, like, talking to her, like, you dirty slut. Now you have to be like, you have such a great sense of humor. Yes. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. I think you have, to, you have to worry about that kind of stuff now. But yes. if you're taking notes, like I am here. Uh, number three. Now, this one goes back to your number one, the heavy breathing. Mm, so mm-hmm. heavy breathing and moaning are two different things. Heavy breathing is, is more of the... Well, Oh yeah. Let's All right, stop. All right, stop. Are I was we going to do <laughs> Shut up. I was just I was just giving an example. Are we going to do the when Harry met Sally? No, 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 no. I was just yeah. trying to simulate what breathing was like oh, I see. Uh, in case you didn't know. Uh, in case people don't know what heavy breathing right. is. Right. Okay. Well, thank because you so much. There's a fine line between moaning and breathing, right? right so moaning is ma- Can can we hear some moaning? Nope. All right. What? Why not? Nope. A heavy breathing. 60 How are we going to know the difference? <laughs> stop it. 60% of men and 46% of women like heavy breathing. So what is it? So why don't the women like heavy breathing? I wonder why. Maybe maybe women are interpreting that as like really heavy breathing. Oh, That's okay. Maybe it's creepy. Weird and oh, creepy and awkward. It could be creepy. I don't know. All right. This one is, I love the disconnect on this one. Screaming. <laughs> okay. 51% of men like it. 36% of women like it. So guys, don't scream in there. <laughs> women go for it, but apparently guys do not scream. Well, men seem to be half half on it. And, yeah. And a third of women like it. So. And that makes sense because I'm just trying to think screaming. as sex goes, I don't think you want a man screaming at you, right? Because <laughs> what could they say? It just it doesn't sound right. Right? It just doesn't yeah, come yeah. across. Uh, Swearing. Now, again, this goes almost so towards. So that's the, like dirty the, talking of a specific kind. Yes. This is using profanity. This is using uh-huh. the seven dirty words, as George Carlin once said. Okay. 
Okay. 39% of men like it, 31% of women like it, which I guess it's the, one of those people, if you're hanging out with somebody who doesn't like to use profanity, they probably just don't like yeah, to hear but it. Yeah, but ex- this is kind of weird because, like, is fuck swearing? Yes. Because- I think a lot of people will say, oh, fuck, that's amazing, or yeah. something like that, right, during sex, which I think could be a good thing. Yeah. Maybe, I guess it depends how you use it. Because if you say, fuck, like that, it's like, again, I don't know why I just used that voice just yeah. then. But if you're doing it like that, like, maybe it's not so much. becoming so inappropriate. Yeah, it is really bad. All right, let's keep moving on. Your, your, uh, your partner of 20 years is going, going to leave you. Yeah, let's hope she doesn't listen to this one. All right, uh, <laughs> this is a sound. I didn't realize this was one just of the- Just to let people know, Joe's all the way on the other side of the studio. Yes. There's a really, really big divide in Whoa, between geez. us. I thought you were going to say something else. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Is that so? Uh, yes, we're separated by uh, <laughs> by a large table, so we're fine. Uh, so this this sound is, I, I guess I never even thought of it, Dr. Jana, squeaking. Squeaking? 28% of men like it, 15% of women like it. The, okay, so. I, I get that, okay. because no woman wants to hear a guy be like, <laughs> it'd be like she's having sex with like Bambi or, or like, you know, a, a puppy. That, that Don't do that. I can, yeah, that's a that's a good one to stay away from. Okay. Uh, from both sides. Do not speak. A, and finally, silence. Not exactly a sound, but I guess they put it under there. Oh, it's lack of sound. Yeah, lack of sound. 8% of men like it. So men men need some sort of oral Definitely. stimulation there. Mm-hmm. Women, 13% like it. I don't know. And going back to the original point there, Dr. Mm-hmm. Shana, who would like silence? I mean, unless you're in, in some sort of <laughs> closet where you're trying to keep, you keep it quiet <laughs> right, or right. something. Or your parents are in the other room yeah. and you're trying to keep quiet, I suppose. I because mean, you, like you said, you had that one dude who just was completely silent. One and, dude? Again, I didn't want to get too... Too literal or anything. You had, you've had some guys. It is way more common than it should be. Yes. So if, really, if you have you know thirteen percent of women like it, if you were trying to some kind of create some like matched numbers, yeah, right, it would be like something like ten percent of men uh, being completely silent. I would say that's much higher. That's probably more like really. I don't know, twenty or thirty percent. Wow. Yeah. You know, maybe it's my athletic background. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> shut up. I'm just trying to say that maybe as, a, as like an athlete, when I'm running or playing any kind of sports, I make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. So you would think that would, for most guys that, that would translate mm-hmm. into the, the lovemaking thing. <clears throat> I, yeah, I don't know what to say. All right. I left you speechless. Uh, can we get to our main topic, to shave or not to shave? Yes, please. The Science of Sex Goes Deeper. So, Joe, hmm. how do you feel about pubic hair? Uh, I mean, I, I got it. Well, we all <laughs> have it to yeah. some extent, or most of us. Okay, I never thought much about it. I mean, I me mean, personally, I do you groom? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't look like a porn star or anything like that. <laughs> okay, so, so you groom? Yes. Down there. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your preferred tool of grooming? Well, I'm a guy. I'm not psychotic. I'm not using like a straight razor or anything like that. Is Just, that psychotic? Yes. I would never put a sharp blade in, in any area below <laughs> my waist. Uh, a lot of guys do. I, so please, the, no, no uh, mental health shaming or something <laughs> of people who are perfectly mentally healthy. I'm saying they're crazy, <laughs> but they're not. Uh, they're not mentally well. You know what I'm saying? Whatever it is. I'm not saying I'm not being offensive or anything like that. I think that's a crazy thing to do to try to do that. Okay, so yes, I would use an electrical type device. Okay, electric uh, razor. Yes, or something. Okay, or scissors. No, no, no scissors. Again, what scissor? It's a sharp tool. I'm not using that down there. (laughs) Is this getting somewhere? It is totally getting somewhere. Okay. Do you think there's a correlation, a relationship between pubic hair grooming Mm -hmm. and sexually transmitted infections? Like, do you think you're more or less likely to get some STIs if you groom or if you don't groom? I think you are more likely because this is a discussion we've had weeks ago on the show. Oh, damn it. You see, I listened to you and that basically people who do groom a lot mm-hmm. are more likely to be sexually active. Wow, you learn. See? You listen yes. and you learn. The science of sex. <laughs> I'm on board. Yes, so you're right. Today on the show, we have one of the authors of the study. So far, pretty much the only big, large uh, study with a nationally representative sample. Here's your favorite f- yes, favorite phrase. I love that. That has looked into this question of uh, whether you know pubic hair grooming is somehow correlated to sexually transmitted infections. Wow. So if if I'm not mistaken, this is our first 
pubic hair expert on the show. I think this is our first <laughs> pubic hair expert on the show. You're awesome. right. Good. His name is Dr. Benjamin Breyer. He's an associate professor of urology and epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California at San Francisco. And he's also a practitioner. He's a surgeon and chief of urology at the San Francisco General Hospital. Dr. Breyer's primary research interests involve studying the epidemiology of sexual dysfunction, lower urinary tract infections, and genitourinary trauma and reconstruction. If you happen to cut something off with those scissors that Joe's not using, you can go to Dr. Breyer <laughs> and he'll fix it. His work has been funded by the National Institute of Health, and he has authored or co-authored over 130 articles and book chapters. Damn. Dr. Benjamin Breyer, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be a part of this. Uh, we're so happy to have a pubic hair expert on the show. At least Joe is very oh. happy. I don't know. This is the first time I can relate to one of the uh, the scientists we got on the show, Dr. Breyer. <laughs> so wait, why pubic hair? And we know you're a urologist and you have published a bunch of stuff on other topics. Like this, this is probably not what you, know, you wake up every day thinking of. Yeah, no, no doubt. It's certainly not. But um, <laughs> the, the, the impetus is really, I treat trauma cases. So if someone gets shot in the kidney, mm. I'm one of the doctors that helps do surgery on that. And we were looking at this emergency room database to see what common genitourinary injuries come to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, surprising to us, in fact, shocking, was the fact that about, in adults, 3% of emergency room visits for genitourinary injuries were related to pubic hair grooming oh, over, wow. the, over this nine-year period. And so we published a paper on that, and I, I kind of wanted to do a follow-up study to, to learn a little more about, you know, why people get injured. And in creating this survey, I came across a couple studies, small single institution studies, that one that looked at molluscum and showed that the, there's an association between grooming and molluscum transmission. And now I know that most people have no idea, and Joe's face tells me that uh, most people are going to have no idea what molluscum is. Yeah. So. yeah, it's a cutaneous virus that you get these little skin lesions. It can be transmitted during sex, it can be transmitted just skin-to-skin -skin contact. You can get outbreaks in uh, daycare centers. It can become more of a profound infection in immunocompromised patients. Mm -hmm. But it's also known to be a, something that you can transmit via sex. And, and this study showed that they were seeing more of this and they thought it was related to grooming habits. So people shaving down there, either spreading the virus on themselves or promoting the transmission of it. And then another paper that looked at crabs. Pubic lice, yeah. Pubic lice. Mm -hmm. And this one, I think everybody can intuitively really understand. <laughs> yeah. you, sure. you get rid of the hair, you get rid of the lice. <laughs> so. Habitat loss. This yeah. is probably one of the few cases yeah. where we're sort of happy that there's been habitat loss. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no one, no one wants that. And so, you know, that kind of got us thinking, like, hey, is there, is there a relationship here? So we added that component, the... STI component, the sexually transmitted infection component to our survey. And that kind of birthed a few studies that, um, one of which we're talking about now. Hey, Doc, about, uh, can we go start with the injuries part? Like you said, it was like, how many, 3% <laughs> yeah, you yeah. were saying? or Yeah. So 3%. What were you seeing in those 3%? Was it guys using like straight blades and they were just cut? Like, I'm just curious, what, like, what were those injuries? Or because like, right before we called you, yeah. I asked Joe if he grooms and I asked him how he does it. And he was like, I'm not crazy. I'm not putting a straight razor to that yeah. part of my body are you insane yeah that's yeah. why i wear button fly <laughs> jeans at all times i want nothing sharp below down there doc so yeah. what are these what are these injuries from you know that one study that looked at that was more sort of just understand that was more epidemiology and so we only had these two sentence narratives in this data set that told us about the injury so okay. we really couldn't with great validity understand the mechanism oh okay so we did do this follow-up study that's in jama dermatology for guys the most common site of injury was the scrotum. And in that population of people that groom, about 25% of people reported having an injury. Which basically means a cut in most cases, yeah. I assume? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 From a uh, straight razor. Exactly. So most common injury type was laceration followed by burn. What? Um, burn? And then rashes. Wait, what, what burn? From what? So burn, it could be a chemical burn or wax. Oh, jeez. Okay. Who's waxing down there? Some people are. A lot I of people know. are. Well, not a lot, but some people are. <laughs> some people are. <laughs> yeah. and, and so in this bigger study that we did, you know, we did find that 1.4% of the people 
a significant number of people experienced injury, 25%, and, and, and then of the whole population, 1.4% of the groomers had gone and sought medical attention for their injury. Mm-hmm. So this is like, it could be something like they have an abscess, it could be they have a laceration that won't stop bleeding, overly nervous or overly cautious, maybe they have an infection, uh, folliculitis, but it's a... Uh, surprised us just how i mean if you think about scale that on the 300 million people in the states yeah right that's that's a lot of folks and a lot of folks groom in general right so one of the studies that you looked at with this nationally representative sample of american adults found that the majority of people both men and women have groomed at least once right yeah 85 percent of women have reported grooming and 66 percent of men if people want to know what's what's most common so you found that for guys electric razors Joe fits into this um, the, the largest category. Yeah. About forty-two percent use electric razors as their tool of choice. Thirty-four percent use regular razors. Okay, that's one third of the population that you called insane uh, a couple of minutes I don't ago. Know if I call them insane, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> and then scissors came in third with nineteen percent going for scissors. And then for ladies, the top method was a regular razor. Oh, yeah. okay, that 60%. makes sense. Sixty percent. Yeah. Oh, for them it makes sense. Well, no, because they're using the one because they're probably shaving their legs, and then uh-huh. yeah, yeah, that makes well, sense. You're shaving your your beard. Yeah, I know. It's different. But we have stuff sticking out. That's the Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that was 61%. And then uh, scissors was only 18%. Electric razors was only 12%. And waxing was 5%. With electrolysis and laser, very rare in both genders. These days, obviously, as these numbers are, are showing, we tend to remove hair, pubic hair, uh, on a somewhat regular basis. At least many people have done it a few times. So there, it's not very popular these days. But evolution came up with it. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it gave humans this pubic hair. Uh, there's got to be a reason for it. Usually evolution doesn't do things without a reason. So why? Why do we have he- pubic hair? You know, I think that evolutionarily it probably serves the purpose of warmth and protection. Mm. And it's a physical barrier from... Stuff getting in there? Stuff, Yeah, stuff getting in there. Mm-hmm. The, we did, did do this study that um, got coverage in the New York Times, of all places, but <laughs> about women's habits and um, a lot of women were doing it because they thought they would be more hygienic mm-hmm. and really all medical experts all agree that it's really there, there's no no purpose there in terms of hygiene hmm. it's all just sort of for cosmetic cosmetic reasons. changes that people are uh, feel make them look better or perception their, perception exactly mm-hmm. thank you make their genitals look better and, and these kind of things i mean that makes sense me not being the only non-doctor here is the fact that i mean women's sexual organs are all internal so unless it, they, their pubic hair wouldn't have any difference to make what's what's going on down below right sure yeah and you know it's interesting why people do it i mean one of, one of the studies that came out of this work was we looked at genital dissatisfaction in men. The thing that men were most dissatisfied with was the flaccid length of their penis. So one, of the, one of the things that we found, which was interesting, they weren't as bothered by their erect length, which I would think would be more yeah. important, but they were worried about how small they looked when they were flaccid. Well, that and, makes sense, Doc, because we're more likely to be flaccid throughout a, a period of a day, so you're more likely to yeah, see but, it flaccid. But, but your partners aren't going to see you flaccid as much, But it doesn't right? matter. Guys like things bigger and better. So if they, if they're, <laughs> if they see their wiener smaller, that, that they think about it. Whereas, like you, like you mentioned, when it's erect, you're like, hey, there you go. That's pretty good. Yeah, but the function is what matters. You're not going to fuck anyone with a flaccid penis. We don't think like that, Jonna. Really? Yeah. You know, okay. Because that's five minutes of the day. The other, the, <laughs> the other twenty-three hours and fifty-five minutes of the day, we've got to look at that little thing there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and so for for some, that's they they groom their pubic hair to make their you know their flaccid length look bigger. Mm-hmm. Right, because the the hair can hide parts of it, especially yeah. if it's long and unruly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I I know your trauma expert and not a you know, social cultural critic or whatever, but why do you think we've seen such a big shift in terms of preferences for for pubic hair? Because even up until you know, 30, 40 years ago, it was not that common to have all this grooming, not just of pubic hair, but just body hair in general. Well, you know, and I I've honestly defer to you as an expert in this area <laughs> of sexology, but I think a lot of studies have pointed to the internet and pornography and available material, and you guys probably know better than me why, why they went ahead and, and started doing it, but just seeing... Because you can see better? That, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's because you can see better. That being the norm uh, in that industry has uh, disseminated across society as like a new normal. I, I was going to ask you to define folliculitis because 
probably for most people, because you mentioned it a couple times, and for most people, it's probably not something they know. Yeah, it, you know, you can have a, a range of, of different skin conditions. So folliculitis would just be the razor burn or bumps that you get, and that can lead to something called cellulitis, which is a, a soft tissue infection, the superficial layers of the skin. The mm. skin is red, it's painful, it's an infection that needs to be treated with antibiotics. Oh, wow. It can also lead to an abscess, so you can have like a zit sort of thing that can come about from an ingrown hair that can kind of, if left untreated or undrained, it can uh, expand and become a little abscess. Dang. And there's actually, there's, there's, a, there's a few reports in the literature of, of terrible, terrible necrotizing fasciitis from pubic hair grooming, where um, people have lost limbs, people have come close to dying from... From shaving? From shaving, yeah. Well, well listen, if that became more common, no one would be shaving. This yeah, <laughs> the razor companies no are going to go out yeah. of business, so good that it's not a very common thing. Guys will have Cousin It down there all the time. Like, Screw that. I don't care what it looks like. <laughs> okay, so we've been talking about injuries. All of that sort of makes intuitive sense, right? You're you're removing something physically there with uh, potentially sharp tools and, and stuff, and so it can lead to injuries. But what about STIs? Like, what is the connection there? And we talked a little bit about pubic lice, which makes sense. You kill the, the, the habitat, yeah. the home where they grow, where they live, and they'll disappear. But what about these other ones? What about like chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV? Yeah. Why should absence of hair or the process of removing hair increase or decrease STI transmission rates? So there's a couple thoughts. One is that there could be micro tears when you're shaving with the blade. You can have little cuts that mm. are imperceptible. Sometimes not. Obviously, we experience, you know, shave my face, I've cut my face. Sometimes they're imperceivable, sometimes they are, but you can you can experience these microdermal abrasions. It's possible that if you went shaved yourself and then went out and had an encounter that you could theoretically get some type of transmission of a virus through secretions like chlamydia, like oh. gonorrhea. That would be like a fresh cut though, right? That would like it be because yeah, doesn't I mean, your skin heal pretty quickly in it terms does, of it small does. cuts? It, it should re-epithelialize within six hours yeah. after being cut. But six hours, I think a lot yeah. of people will shave right before going out, for example. Okay. And, you know, right before having a, an encounter. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. So definitely that's a, be within that six-hour period. So that's the takeaway here, Doc. If you, <laughs> if you are going to shave, just make sure you give yourself like a good six-hour window <laughs> before you go out. <laughs> the other thing is you could have lesions down there like HPV, a condyloma that you're, it's small, you're not really aware of it, and you could shave it, and then that that could promote shedding virus to your partner. You mean uh, like little warts? Yeah, like a little wart. Mm -hmm. You know, people, not, not everyone is kind of in tune with what's going on down there, not, not paying attention, not see it. And sometimes these things are small and aren't hard to perceive. Right. And, you know, we tried to adjust for a lot of these things. But the other thing that it could just be is, as you mentioned, people do this as a preparatory act for sex. They may be going out hoping to have an encounter. And we do know that people that groom tend to have more sex there's some evidence that they may have riskier encounters. Um, so this just may be a sign uh, of that. And uh, we tried to adjust for this thing called confounding by looking at number of sexual partners and a number of other things. Grooming is just a preparatory act for sex, and that's why these people have more infections. Okay, so those are some possibilities of why we might be seeing this. And uh, the study that you and your colleagues published in, in 2016 was basically the first large-scale kind of nationally representative sample of U.S. adults looking at whether there was a relationship between pubic hair grooming and STIs. Tell us just a little bit about methodology. Who are the participants and how, how you assess their grooming and their STI status? So it's, it's a survey, and we worked with a company that, that is like a bank of people, average Americans, that do surveys in exchange for, a, you know, a small monetary thing. I think it's like a dollar per survey. And our instrument was distributed over a one-month period to participants, and then, um, then we analyzed the data. And the study was two parts, one about injury, the other about sexually transmitted infections. The outcome we were looking at, um, self-reported sexual transmitted infections, and we asked people what they were using uh, to groom if they were grooming at the time, what they were using at the time of the sexually transmitted infection. And then we captured things like, how often do you groom? How much hair do you take off? We used a, a validated instrument on self-perceived hairiness because uh, 
we were curious if people that were more hairy did they end up getting injured more or not? Did uh, they? It turned out in some in some groups, yes. Well, I guess yeah. The more you do something, you're more likely to hurt yourself. Definitely, the people that groom more frequently and more extremely yeah. uh, got hurt more. Um, right. We did see this dose response relationship, which means you know the people that did it more, the people that did it more extremely, had more of these. Particularly the what we described as the cutaneous sexually transmitted infections, which which was herpes, HPV, warts, syphilis, and the molluscum. And we mean extreme people. What do you mean by that? Like the people who shave everything off? Yeah, ex- extreme. I know it sounds <laughs> like yeah, rumors. I was just trying to get what you get at. It's yeah. like a Mountain Dew ad. Yeah, but yeah, it's um. It's people that take it all off. All off. Okay, so yeah, so you found that the extreme groomers, all hair gone, yep. and the frequent groomers, which were daily or weekly, that they had higher rates of STIs. We found the relationship to be stronger uh, amongst the ones that were cutaneous. The cutaneous ones are herpes, human papillomavirus, which is warts, uh, syphilis, and the molluscum, and the, the ones that are secretory are gonorrhea, chlamydia, and HIV. And then, you know, we saw when we compared, so this group of sexually transmitted infections that have cutaneous manifestation versus the ones that And cutaneous secretions. just means skin. Skin, skin. Yeah. yeah. Like cuts. Skin, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Skin manifestations versus secretions. We found both were associated with grooming in a dose-response relationship, but definitely it was a more significant, higher risk for the skin ones. So I think that that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And in the discussion, talked about different explanations for this. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's this concept of residual confounding. We, you know, we adjusted for age, we adjusted for number of lifetime sexual partners. But you know, that being said, there's there's still a lot of things that we didn't mm. ascertain. Important things like did they use a condom? What were the sexual partners' STI histories? Right. Important questions that we just didn't ascertain. Okay, so we find higher rates of STIs among groomers, and more, more frequently they groom and more extremely they groom, the higher those rates. And this is particularly true for the skin-to-skin ones, which mm-hmm. I guess makes sense if, if the mechanism of transmission is by the micro-tears or non-micro-tears. Mm-hmm. Now, you... you mentioned that groomers in general are more likely to have more sexual partners and they're also more likely to have sex more often. Did these results still hold true even after controlling for the number of partners? Yeah, it did. Did you control for other things like how often people had sex and and other variables that may be relevant here? We looked at it a lot of different ways and um, none of those other things really influenced the risk estimates. So we just mm. stuck with age and number of lifetime sexual partners. But we did it multiple sensitivity analyses where we adjusted a lot of different mm. ways that just didn't really seem to change the risk estimates. So number of lifetime sexual partners seemed to be the, the one that was the most significant. And you said you're doing some follow-up work. We're working with some folks at the city clinic here through the Department of Public Health. These are public health physicians and researchers that are that are interested in sexually transmitted infections. And we're trying to, A, replicate and, and, and see if, if the findings that we got from the survey, which, listen, a survey has a lot of methodologic issues, recall bias, like we're asking these people to think about a sexually transmitted infection they could have had in right. 2005. 10 years before, yeah. Exactly. yeah. You know, who knows? So we're trying to see, is, is, is this... Is this for real? By going to the city clinic and actually getting people and uh, and and seeing where they're at in terms of infections and grooming. So you'll be getting in touch with actual patients at the clinics and then getting their like actual results from yeah, STI ex- testing, exactly. exactly, as opposed to them trying to tell you whether they were diagnosed right. with something or not. Which mm-hmm. and that's a that's another issue with the surveys, right? People don't necessarily know whether they've had something or not. Some of the things are very confusing. Like many of them probably didn't know what molluscum was or even terms like human papillomavirus. Right. That's familiar to some, but not everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we're going to try to validate this and replicate the results in a a different population with different methods. So with these people, you're still going to, I guess, ask them kind of in a survey-based way to to tell you about their grooming practices? Yeah, I think we'll use the similar approach with, you know, how hairy are you, how frequently do you do these things, et cetera. Right, but the outcome variable is going to be 
assessed differently in a better better way than, yeah. than the survey. For that, I, I just had a technical comment about uh, the extreme groomers. The, the way that survey, and you, you probably thought about this, but what stood out to me was that the way you assess the extreme groomers does not necessarily take into account people who've done these more um, permanent methods of hair removal. Right, so if you've done electrolysis or laser hair removal, you may have done that seven years ago, and you don't need to be doing it on a regular basis. You still don't have hair, but you won't fit into that extreme grooming category, which requires 11 or more or more than 11 times a year having removed all of the hair, right? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point. We, we should, uh, because those people that are doing the permanent approaches, they're, they're not uh, putting themselves at the risk that... Right. The other groups are right. So if it's about not having hair versus the process of of hair removal, it's uh, I guess those are the two different things. But so are we proclaiming a pubic hair grooming a public health hazard? <laughs> no, I think people should do what they want to do. I mean, I think people should know you know that there are some risks. Uh, you know, twenty five percent report that they've had an injury, and one point two percent of groomers go to the seek medical attention for an injury. And then there's this potential sexually transmitted infection risk that I think still requires more study to validate. But I think it all comes down to the person and, and just making smart decisions for them. I think if you've like had an injury, had a bad complication from it, you might want to rethink how you're doing things. But <laughs> it's a personal choice. You're not going to tell people what to do? Not on this. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> and it's funny, going back to your original point when we talked about why, why this started, it's really all stems back to adult videos and porn and XXX. It's all about that because before that, this was probably not even a study you'd even consider doing. <laughs> if you if this, this was 1975, Doc, you probably this wouldn't be the last thing on your mind. You wouldn't be seeing injuries in the emergency room of people getting hurt shaving down there, you know? I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Would you recommend any one method over another method? No, we really, because we don't, we honestly don't have a denominator. We don't know specifically which is the most dangerous method. But you as a guy, you wouldn't put a blade down there, would you, Doc? Come on. <laughs> You're a smart man. I can't see you doing that. Are you calling the third of male <laughs> groomers who whose preferred method is a regular razor? Are you calling them stupid? No. You, yeah, you, stop you putting just, words in my mouth. You just did that. You can't do that. All right, I apologize. I didn't mean that, but I'm just saying, Doc, you you seem like a fellow who'd probably use an electric razor. <laughs> Does that make? Does that sound better? You know what? Yeah, the urology community is small out here in San Francisco. Oh, okay, so all right. So I, I, gotcha. I can't. I can't afford to get injured. So, um, That's way TMI. Yeah, good answer, <laughs> sir. Good answer. Okay, thank you so much for being in the show. Great to be on, guys, and, and thanks so much for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for uh, getting personal with us. That was that was great. <laughs> I, f I feel like we can hang out after this, Doc. <laughs> Good. We'll get a beer. All That's right. Awesome. Well, that was uh, very educational, Dr. Jana. Yes. Now we know. I know more about pubic hair than I really need to know, but hey, listen, that's what the science sex is all about. We're here to educate exactly, you. Exactly. Now, what's happening next week on the show? Uh, next week, we have Dr. Cynthia Graham from the UK who's going to talk to us about some condom errors. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. <laughs> Weren't we supposed to talk about that this week? Yeah, I know. We were supposed to talk about that this week, but uh, there was a little mix-up. A uh, scheduling snafu? A ske scheduling snafu. I'm going to blame it all on our assistant, Corey. Yes. Because, of course, you can always blame it all on the assistants, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, right? yeah. Yeah, it's their fault. But anyway, so we didn't get to talk to Dr. Cynthia yeah. Graham this week, but we are going to talk to her next week and talk to us about condom errors. So tune in next time. You know, th I feel we have two very kind of practical sexual health educational episodes in a row. Yeah. You know, one about grooming and then the next one about how to use condoms correctly and accurately. So after this, you're going to be all good to go, peeps. Well, that's good. Well, listen, <laughs> if you tune in the, for this week's episode about condoms, Condoms, please come back next week <laughs> yes. and we'll have that. All right, Dr. John, anything else we got to do? Yes, please uh, remember to rate and review the podcast if you like what you hear because that helps other people find the podcast. Spend a couple of minutes and go on iTunes and rate and re review us. Yeah, don't complain about the fact that we screwed up episodes and like no, that. No, no. You could no. send that all to our assistant, Corey. Yeah, just send it to Corey <laughs> and yell at her. All right, we love you, Corey. Bye. Love you. <laughs> 
The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 